The ethanol sector has been on a wild ride in recent months, from recovering from the COVID slump to seeing demand spike as fuel prices rise. But what uncertainty for corn-based fuel still lies ahead? That's today on Field Posts. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. In the last few years, the ethanol industry has been through a lot. From promised E15 expansions and small refinery waivers through a global pandemic that cratered driving demand, through today's energy scarcity that has prompted the Biden administration to expand E15 availability during the summer months once again. Though demand is certainly looking up for ethanol, there are risks too, as corn and other commodity grains rise in price. And at the same time, legislative uncertainty looms. Today, DTN staff reporter Todd Neely joins us to discuss what we can expect in terms of ethanol news and announcements during the summer driving season, and what that might mean for corn and ethanol demand. We'll dig into the potential impacts of pending state-level action, what the impact of global demand in alternative markets might be, and what the EPA might be thinking as it looks to a less certain future for the RFS. Plus, an update on how all these factors may impact other parts of the ag sector, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at mydtn.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN staff reporter Todd Neely has been following the ethanol story closely for years and brings us an extensive update on how the sector is weathering a ton of uncertainty in recent days. Todd, I'm curious if you could just give us a little bit of a top line of where we are right now in terms of ethanol. We're at the beginning. We're a few weeks out from the beginning of the summer driving season, which is traditionally a big time to talk about ethanol. So what are what stories are you watching most closely today? Yeah, well, Sarah, you know, the one thing I think probably in June is going to be a big month for ethanol. There was a lawsuit filed by Growth Energy, which is one of the lobbying groups in D.C. for ethanol. What came out of that lawsuit was EPA agreed that they would finalize the RFS volumes. And we've got a number of different different years in their proposal. They want to go back and reset the 2020 volumes, which have already and set 2021 and 2022. That's just for the RFS volumes. And then beyond that, there's going to be a proposal once we get to 2023, there's no longer a law in effect technically. The RFS is in effect, but it's up to the EPA to set the volumes beyond that. And June's going to be a big month for all things ethanol and the RFS. And uh, as you said, we're getting into the driving. We've had some action on that. The Biden administration 
went ahead and uh, granted a basically an emergency waiver, which is going to allow the sale of ethanol E15 through the summer, which normally we get to June 1st. And E15 is not sold year-round in a lot of places in the country because of ozone regulations. So we're kind of at a point now, too, on E15 that we've had governors of eight states ask the EPA to conduct a rulemaking that would allow them to sell all the time and basically a permanent fix. So there's a lot going on, but I I would say June is kind of a watershed month for ethanol. I want to talk a little bit more about E15 and a couple of those, the other issues you just mentioned, but I want to start by putting this in the context of the last several months as well, because I think a big part of the motivation for the Biden administration offering that waiver comes because there is some extreme demand for energy in general and kind of gasoline in particular. Talk a little bit about how Ukraine, I think, is top of mind for folks in this sense, how recent events have shifted what things look like in the ethanol space right now. It's interesting. I think if you were to talk to ethanol producers right now, they'd say the margins are good. The one thing I think that's really changed, we've seen a precipitous rise in gas prices. I know right here in the Midwest, I live in Lincoln, Nebraska, we're paying about 416, 417 a gallon. And that's that would be an all-time high, at least here. So the whole discussion about finding the sources of energy, especially in the transportation liquid fuels industry, it really has open the door for ethanol, especially E15. When you look at when you look at prices in the gasoline, prices in the fuel that we fuel up on, you compare E15 to regular gasoline and other blends, and there is a bit of a price disparity. It's cheaper to fill up with E15. And so I think that's really opened the door for the ethanol industry, at least when it comes to coming up with a permanent solution uh, to selling year-round E15. We had, under the, the previous administration, we had year-round E15, and then a court came along and struck that down. And so that's why we're back to where we are, trying to restore a nationwide a nationwide allowance of E15 to be sold. Right now, that's kind of, it's piecemeal on, on that front. What we've seen with the whole war in Ukraine and just fuel prices in general, it's really opened the door. And I think we're seeing some push as well beyond E15, E20, E30. There's been some discussion right here in Nebraska about expanding E30 availability. And we saw as well in Iowa, which is the, the, the number one ethanol producing state in the country, the governor of Iowa here just recently, a law into effect that's going to provide uh, statewide E15 in Iowa by the by year 2026, I think it is. And so there's definitely a lot of movement. And I think E15 is just one place that it's starting. A lot of it's going to be decided about what the RFS looks like and things like that too. But Certainly, the the ways of the world right now have have opened the the door wide when it comes to talking about the price to fuel up. I want to springboard off that E30 discussion and things happening in specific states, especially, I think, on the soybean crush and biodiesel side, we've also seen a lot of demand coming out of not necessarily the big soybean states, but from states like California or Washington or Oregon who have low carbon fuel standards as driving a lot of that demand. Is that also having an effect on the ethanol side? Yeah, there's no doubt, Sarah. When you look at the low carbon fuel standard in particular in California, most of it's meeting that standard. Most of the fuel that's allowed into California and used in California for the LCFS is ethanol. And so we've seen a growth in E85. It's an ongoing thing out there. We, we had Nebraska Corn Board and others, I believe the Corn Board in Kansas is making some investments out in California, providing infrastructure at stations and that sort of thing. And there's no doubt that when you look to the future, I think the low carbon fuel standard, 
idea is something that's definitely going to spread. I know there's been talk of uh, having a Midwest version of that, which would probably look quite a bit different from California and Oregon and all places out West. And I think more demand is going to start coming from California because they really don't have a lot of other options outside of biodiesel, renewable diesel. And as you know, that that industry, while it's uh, it's really starting to see some serious growth, it's still a lot less in terms of production than what we see with ethanol and the potential for ethanol. There's still a lot of production out there that's left on the shelf. Plants have had to, in the past several years, have scaled back production in response to COVID and, and other things. And just having that demand, though, out in California, I think it's something that has raised a lot of eyebrows in the industry as to what a low-carbon fuel standard could mean in individual states and regions. And I, and I think California is definitely a model program in looking at it, but I do think that we're going to see other states adopt things that, that would work for them. Going off of, you mentioned COVID and the COVID impacts of the last couple of years. I want to bring that in as well, because I think ethanol also had some challenges in COVID and was still largely working a lot of that, the decrease in fuel demand and how that disrupted ethanol supply chains was still working that, that through the system. Have we, has the ethanol sector recovered totally from COVID or is there still some issues there? That's interesting. I think, I think margin wise, yeah, we've, we're seeing higher corn prices. We're seeing high fuel prices. There's a lot of things going up from inflation and other things that are happening. But I think that when you look at ethanol and the bounce back from the COVID shutdown, I think there's still a lot of plants that probably aren't producing to full capacity. And a lot of that just has to do with the economics and, and the demand. I think that as we look forward down in the future, I think that if we could see more in terms of what the EPA might decide to do with the RFS, there'd be some more policies, policy stability, I think you might see some of those other gallons and production capacity come back online. But it really, the COVID shutdown really did deliver quite a blow to the industry. And I think that this current rate of commodity prices right now, we're seeing quite a run up. I think that's probably going to put some limits and put a little bit of the brakes on some of that. But certainly anything that the EPA can do on the RFS side, I think could change the game there. I'm curious too, you mentioned in an earlier response, EPA has some requirements out right now to, to publish some volumes. And then also at the end of this year, there's a bit of a change in the legislation. I think depending on who you talk to, they will describe that coming change a little differently. From your perspective, what, how uncertain is the, the like near-term future of ethanol? And what are you hearing about what kind of decisions EPA is, is planning to make? Yeah, that's a good question. I think if anyone had a crystal ball on EPA, it would change a lot of attitudes and concerns. But I do think that what we've seen under the Biden administration so far, the RFS has been uh, kind of been a stepchild in a way. And what I mean by that is that there's not been a lot of stability. We're way behind on a lot of these volumes re that are supposed to be released by EPA under the RFS. And just getting those out, like I said, hopefully next month is what we are seeing. I think that could provide some of the stability that this industry is going to need. When you look at ethanol, though, there's always going to be a need for a 10% blend of ethanol just because of oxygen requirements and other things that uh, the petroleum industry needs to follow. I do think that E10 value is always going to be there in the industry. There's going to be a build-in demand either. But I think certainly the industry would like to see a lot larger, wider discussion when it comes uh, the carbon reductions and, and all these things that the Biden administration's focused on. We've really seen the ethanol industry trying to push their side of the story and, and how they can provide carbon reductions now. It's not something that uh, requires a lot of infrastructure build out like what we see with electric vehicles, but it's certainly something that's there. And we've got a lot of ethanol companies 
that would be more than willing uh, to step up production and really uh, provide more of a carbon benefit. And it's interesting. I think that if we could see what EPA has in mind for at least those volumes that are outstanding and then get some semblance as to what they're going to do on a future reset, I think a lot of people would feel a lot better. But right now, we just don't know. It's going to depend. I think with the reset, it's going to really open up the RFS as if it's not already a political hotspot. I, I think that the RFS's future is going to depend largely still on who's ever in power in Washington. Speaking of the political aspect of this, I'm curious for an update. I think the last time we spoke, waivers, small refinery waivers were still very much the center of the story or the center yeah. of a lot of angst in agriculture. Give us the update on where kind of that story has evolved to. Yeah, the Biden administration by and large has been quite favorable on that front. By the Trump administration, we saw nearly 90 exemptions handed out to small refineries, which means that they were not required to to follow the RFS demands. And so what we've seen under the Biden administration so far, they are leaning toward rejecting all of these waivers going forward. We had an action by the EPA here not that long ago where they had basically rejected 30 of 36 pending waivers from 2018. And so when you look at the waivers, there's a number of years that are involved. And so you see EPA, they're going back and they're looking at these and deciding whether it fits what they want to do. And by and large, the Biden administration has decided uh, that it's not going to be ready and, and willing to hand out waivers. But what we do have, the EPA has put out a proposal that has actually been sent to the Office of Management Budget as we to redo the way that the, that they decide on waivers. And uh, certainly the Biden administration, some of the actions it's taking are certainly far more favorable than what we saw previous. But there's still a lot of question out there as to what, what that means going forward. And there's a lot of discussion about bringing down fuel costs and all these things. And there's certainly some wiggle room that we're hearing from the Biden administration. And what I mean by that, they're certainly willing to consider uh, cutting back ethanol blending in some ways as a possible as a possible solution to the higher fuel costs. Whether that makes sense or not, I don't know. But certainly on the waivers front, though, the Biden administration has been quite favorable. Interesting segue there into, I think, some of the more future looking topics that I wanted to ask you about, which I think one of them being as we saw the impacts of COVID and of these waivers and of just shifting and uncertain demand around ethanol. I think one of the big things we've heard from the biofuel corn ethanol folks has been around, you know, identifying potential and potentially moving towards other markets. I think some kind of corn-based jet fuel has been a poster child of that. I'm curious whether one, that that those discussions have shifted at all, given the, the current state of energy prices in the U.S. over the last couple of months, but also what are you hearing in terms of those markets expanding? Yeah, Sarah, I think it's interesting. When you think about ethanol plants, a lot I think a lot of people immediately they think about, okay, they produce fuel ethanol, they produce dried distillers grains, they capture carbon, a lot of them do. A lot of them sell carbon for, for a lot of different industries. There's a lot of things that an ethanol plant does now. But the one thing that I think going forward, we're gonna see a lot a lot more work being done on what they can do with the carbon. But the big deal right now is sending it through a pipeline or capturing it and sequestering it. <clears throat> but I think when you look at the future of an ethanol plant, I think there's a lot of potential there for producing things like sustainable aviation fuel. There's a lot of other a lot of other fuels that can be produced from ethanol plants. 
And that's strictly from using the carbon. And that's probably broader, longer range stuff. But I do think that every ethanol plant, if you talk to any given plant, they will tell you that they're looking for ways of, of producing more products and helping that bottom line. And I do think, though, it's going to take some investment. It's going to take a lot of time. But the technologies are certainly out there. There's a lot of work being done. And there's actually... Uh, there are actually companies that are looking to buy ethanol plants uh, to produce sustainable aviation fuel. So I think the bigger picture for ethanol plants is a lot more encouraging. I think eventually we're going to see plants that produce a multiple multiple types of fuel, multiple types of potentially even feed. And there's so much out there that an ethanol plant can still uh, can still do. I have to ask a follow up question on the pipelines because I think those have made. A bit of a stir in the ag community, a bit controversial. I'm curious whether you followed those stories at all and whether, yeah, whether you think that might have any ramifications or ripple effects into the current um, and future ethanol landscape. Yeah, I think it's interesting because there's a, there are a lot of communities, a lot of rural communities that have, have come, actually come out against some of these projects. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way the land is used, the concerns about safety. It's very similar to the situation that we see and saw with the Keystone Pipeline. There was a lot of concern about water quality, a lot of things that go into these pipelines. I think sometimes you don't think about the local community effects. And so whenever a pipeline or a project like this is done, there are a lot of questions that people who live in those areas have. And I think maybe longer term, some of these things are obviously going to have to be answered. But I think, like I said, I think there's a lot of room out there for ethanol plants, not just to capture carbon and then to stick it in a pipeline or to sequester it underground. And there's a lot of there's a lot of potential out there for producing fuels, feed, fiber. There's a lot of stuff that that we can do with carbon. And I think that's probably going to be the longer range for focus is when you go to these communities, if you can go to them and say, I've, I've got an ethanol plant and I I want to produce sustainable aviation fuel and I'm going to you know, provide more jobs. I think those things are a lot more appealing uh, to many people than hearing about a pipeline uh, going up in their communities. And so I think it, it certainly, it has raised a lot of attention. And I think in some communities, people are just concerned as they would be with any kind of uh, project like that. I want to ask as well on the demand side about finding new markets for ethanol is not just about finding novel ways to use kind of the raw materials. It's also about just expanding. And it seems, especially as climate change becomes more resonant around the globe, that there is a increasing demand for ethanol exports. I don't know. I'm curious how you keep track of that story, whether you think that's going to play an increasing role as we look to the future of biofuels. I think, Sarah, the one thing that we've always been able to point to, even in times of difficulty for the industry, were the exports. So when we saw the COVID shutdown, there was quite an emphasis among producers to find new markets. And I think those markets are always out there. There is always potential. I think the one thing maybe we've talked about before in other podcasts, I think China's a real wild card. Whatever China decides to do in the future, I think is it definitely has ethanol in the picture. There was a time when the Chinese were looking at requiring 20% blending of ethanol. And the way things change in China, which is on a dime most of the time, they've since gone away from that notion. And so I think any development of export markets is going to be something that is always going to be something that the industry is going to have to fall back on. That's really no different. What those are going to look like down the road, I don't know. There's been work in Mexico done by the ethanol industry here in the United States. They're trying to expand into that country. We've always exported a lot to Canada. And so Canada, the Canadian relationship is always going to be important. But I think it's always something industry is looking at. It could be new places. Today, it might be Canada. Tomorrow, it might be China. And then 
taking all of that, all of the current demands, as you mentioned, prices for corn are pretty high at the moment. I'm curious what that has meant for kind of some of these other advanced biofuels. Obviously, the RFS and things that Ag cares about are more than just corn ethanol. How have those other stories evolved? And do you think as we potentially see EPA planning for the rest of this year and then past 2022, is there, I don't know, do you foresee some big changes maybe in those advanced biofuel spaces? Yeah, I think certainly if you talk to uh, anybody in uh, the administration right now, I'm sure they would tell you that they have a lot of interest on advanced biofuels. And I think one of the things that we've seen, the whole renewable diesel industry has just really began to take off here. We've got a direct competition basically for feedstocks going on between renewable diesel and biodiesel. And so I think the future of advanced biofuels is probably... uh, When you look at that, I think the advanced, I think the renewable diesel is something that's going to continue to grow. It's interesting, though, when you look at the RFS discussion, uh, you don't hear a lot of talk about advanced biofuels. And so I think a lot of these industries like renewable diesel and biodiesel have really been screaming and and yelling and saying, hey, what about us over here? And we're producing a very low carbon fuel. We continue to show growth and, and all these things. And it's been a real challenge, not just with ethanol, but with advanced biodiesel Uh, renewable diesel, all these different industries that are working hard, it's been a real challenge for them to gain the attention of of the administration. I think a lot of the focus on electric vehicles has really made that story even harder to tell. And so I think it's some, it'll be interesting to see what the future for a reset of the RFS is going to look like. I think a lot of people are hopeful that something like renewable diesel is going to be a renewed focus at that point. I'm wondering specifically, too, about the question for, say, the livestock industry, where, you know, especially given the drought situation in the western part of the United States this year and last year, um, and those rising prices for corn, do you see the potential for some conflict brewing within agriculture even as the RFS, as the EPA takes up RFS numbers for next year, that if the price of corn or some of these other feed crops is still very high. That might have, there might be some heated discussion there about what the role of the RFS is going forward. Yeah, I think certainly you hit on something too. They're the livestock industry. Like you said, we've seen, we're seeing tremendous drought, a lot of concern. And I think that when you watch the corn prices go up, the one side of it is it's, it seems really good for the farmer, the corn farmer's bottom line. But then we've got our livestock producers who are really struggling in a lot of ways. And I think the future of that, it's so cyclical. The one thing that we've learned in agriculture since I've been covering it for 15, 20 years is that what is bad, what is a bad story now is a good story later. What is a good story now is a bad story later. There's so much that can change. But I think the one thing we've seen about the RFS, it's brought out a lot of those discussions over the years. And I do think that going forward, I think it's something the EPA really does need to look at. Although, you know, there's a lot that can be said for what ethanol does now. It produces produces DDGs, which is a really good protein feed. And so it's doing its part, but it's certainly when you see the commodity prices go up, it really does create a, a bit of friction within the agriculture industry itself. And I think we're going to see those discussions continue. I mean, it's just something that's natural within the, within the industry. Absolutely. I think I just have a last couple of questions. The first one being, you mentioned this a little bit at the beginning when you were talking about all of the potential announcements and news that we expect coming in June. But I'm curious if I'm a farmer listening to this who is trying to keep track of the ethanol story and kind of the relevant beats. What are you going to be watching most closely going into the summer season? I think the one thing, now that we've got a waiver from EPA allowing year-round E15 sales this summer, 
I think the one thing to watch is how many companies are going to be investing in E15 infrastructure. When we had the year-round E15 figured out under the Trump administration, we were seeing a lot of announcements from, from retail gas stations, retails adding E15 infrastructure and adding it to their, their offering to, to motorists. I think that's something that this summer is going to be interesting. Is that waiver enough to see continuing investments in E15? I think a lot of people would say it will be. And I think there are a lot of regions of the country. And we've got eight governors that have asked for a permanent change by EPA to allow E15 sales all the time. I think the formation of that industry or that market, the E15 market, is something to really keep an eye on because any growth that we're going to see in ethanol is going to be obviously beyond E10. And so we'll, we'll watch it, but I think we're still waiting to see if, if EPA is going to come up with a permanent solution of its own or whether it's going to be something that is done through legislation. We're in an election year, so that's probably not likely. But I think just the E15 market, I think, is something to really uh, keep a watch on. And then I wanted to ask, Todd, you cover so many topics for DTN and are always on a number of stories. Talk to us a little bit about Beyond the Biofuels be what other big stories are you looking forward to covering in the next few months or do you think will be particularly interesting potentially yeah i think uh, we're already starting to see some of that here at dtm but covering the drought situation we've got a lot of stuff going on out west uh, real water challenges when you get colorado and, and west i think that's something that we're all going to be really keeping an eye on it's something that i think we're going to probably see a lot more story coverage as we go forward on that. And the court system. I know a lot of people maybe don't read a lot of what happens in courts, but there's always stuff in agriculture in, in the courtrooms. And we've got a lot of ongoing cases. We've got uh, Supreme Court arguments coming up in the fall on a very important Clean Water Act case that we follow, the Sackett case. So there's a lot going on. There's never a dull moment in ag, but I think certainly the drought out West and we're even seeing drought uh, in the northern prairies, it is, is pretty serious. It'll be interesting to see if that drought improves or worsens or whatever the case may be. And so that's something we'll be definitely tackling. To read more of this deep diving ethanol story or to follow the rest of Todd's up to the minute reporting, visit DTNPF.com or subscribe to the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer with special thanks to Todd Neely. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.